It is Wednesday, March 16th. You are listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup. I'm Adam McKendry. I am your host. Now that Gareth Hanna has decided that he can no longer do sports, he's decided to move over to news. But we are delighted to be joined today by Jonathan Bradley. How are you, Jonathan? I'm fine. I still uh, still like sports, so I'm still here. <laughs> That's good to hear. Otherwise, it would just be me piloting this thing, and I really don't know where it would go in that in that scenario. How are you feeling? You you weren't at Ravenhill on on Saturday night. Are you keeping okay? No, I was uh, I was on Royal on Saturday, but uh, I am fighting fit once again, thankfully. It seems to have hit a lot of people. Like a few people in my family have all had colds over the weekend. I blame COVID. COVID's just shot all our uh, immune systems. <laughs> I uh, I blame my wife for continually bringing these bugs into my house, but uh, that's neither here nor there. So if the Belfast Telegraph rugby coverage takes a hit, we all know who to blame. It's Jonathan's wife. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we are here not to talk about colds. We are here to talk about four games of rugby, uh, two that have just happened and two that are coming up this weekend. And where better to start than at Ravenhill, where I felt very lonely because with Jonathan not there, with a lot of other people having gone over to Twickenham for the game between Ireland and England, it was just myself up at the top of the grandstand at, at Ravenhill and for slightly longer than usual because I went down for the for the Ireland game beforehand that was being shown on the big screens. And it was a it was a fairly lonely six or seven hours by myself. So thanks for nothing, Jonathan. I should probably say uh, a long time to uh, a long time to be sat, sat in the back row of Ravenhill by yourself. Yeah. Well I didn't move much either because there was there was too much to watch, so I was cramping up by the end. Um, no, <laughs> walking back to the car was an experience. It was absolutely freezing. It was still raining a bit. I hadn't walked in so long. It uh, my teeth were chattering by the end, but thankfully, thankfully I survived. Um, but again, not not here to talk about my my ordeal down at Ravenhill. Um, Ulster picking up their seventh straight win, moving one point behind Leinster at the top of the URC standings. How would you sum up that game, Jonathan? It was one where the conditions really ruined it, wasn't it? Yeah, the conditions obviously didn't help. Not dissimilar to the Dragons game, but probably less entertaining in a novelty fashion in the Dragons game because the conditions didn't create anything unusual. I don't I, I don't think anything will I don't think anything will beat the Dragons game for a novelty factor. Like that was something else. Yeah, like so we didn't have the wind whipping the ball about the place. We just had a fairly stodgy game really. And um for those of us with word counts to hit, uh, only having three points in the second half was something of an adventure, but uh in a wider sense, I do think looking at the teams, I think Ulster were clear, clear favourites. Not to go Eddie Jones, all Eddie Jones in this, but he was and wasn't favourites. But looking at the teams, I think the Ulster team was far better. And obviously, a win over Leinster isn't to be sniffed at. Doing the double over Leinster for the first time in since 2013 isn't to be sniffed at. But um, Genuinely, I think the disparity between the two teams, you could have almost expected a more comfortable evening than they ultimately had. I wouldn't disagree with that, actually. Um, 
like whenever you look at who Ulster were missing compared to who Leinster were missing, and obviously anytime you play Leinster during the Six Nations, they're going to be missing sort of 11 to 15 players almost because, you know, they supply so many of the of the Ireland team. Um, I, I, I can't disagree with you that I thought it would be a little bit more easy for Ulster. And I think at times they did make it tough for themselves, especially in the second half. Like, I think they were playing into a little bit of a win to give them a little bit of credit, but Leinster really did dominate the ball in that second half. They had a lot of territory, a lot of possession. I can't remember Ulster really touching the ball or having a significant passage of play in the Leinster half in that second half, which I think probably says how much pressure that they were under. On the flip side of that, you got to give them credit for how they defended because they could have easily capitulated under that pressure and conceded. And look, I think they did get a little bit of a, a helping hand from Frank Murphy with one of those crossing calls. I'm not sure how much of a of an impact that obstruction had. I think it was Dan Levy was the one who who got in the way there. But, you know, to their credit, Ulster defended to a man and came out of that second half with a massive a massive four points in the table because I don't think you can underestimate, as you said, the importance of doing the double over Leinster. You know, Dan McFarland in his post-match, he had the stat ready to go. He was straight in there with uh, with the fact that the Dragons were the only team since Ulster did it in 2012-13 to have doubled up Leinster in the regular season. So I think that sort of tells you how important it was to them to get over the line, especially since the second game was at home. If they were if they were going away to the RDS, you maybe would have said it was something of a pipe dream. But whenever you play Leinster at home, you still expect to win, especially during an international window. So, look, it was a rubbish game just because of the conditions and that just never let it become anything more than, a, than sort of an arm wrestle that Ulster just about managed to win. But I think... For the most part, Ulster will not be going away upset. You're one point behind Leinster in the standings now. You've done the double over Leinster. I'd say they're pretty happy with their with their day's work. Yeah, absolutely. Because the bottom line is that we had this run of games at Ravenhill at the start of the season anyway. That you know where they would get the bonus point, and it all felt fairly fast. I didn't really feel like. Um, also, we're playing that well in that run of games at the start of the season up to Connacht. Um, and I don't think you get too much from those sorts of games, where on the flip side, I think you can take quite a bit from games like the Dragons game, from games like uh, games like Saturday, because what you do have is the replication of big moments and the need for big moments. So the likes of Alan O'Connor stealing the line out down in the corner, the Robert Balakin try save and tackle in the corner, the Dwayne Vermeulen near turnover, possibly should have been a turnover just before that instance of crossing that you mentioned, the Billy Burns tackle that forced the knock on, Tom Stewart getting in there to force that late turnover and Leinster's last piece of possession. Like These are probably all more valuable moments to have in the bank, I suppose, than what we saw earlier in the season with things that, you know, like running in a rig of tries against the Lions and, st- and stuff like that. And the importance in terms of the table for Ulster really was in winning the game because Leinster and Munster 
while Ulster are sandwiched in between them, they have to play each other twice. So the fact that Ulster are one point behind Leinster, the fact that Munster lost in South Africa, and I'm sure we'll touch on this later, but Ulster's trip to South Africa maybe looks a lot less straightforward than uh, some people were predicting a month ago anyway. And they do still have that to come. But the fact of the matter is that Leinster and Munster have to drop points by definition because they're playing each other. So the table's looking pretty good for Ulster in terms of that home semi-final now. Yeah, the home semi-final is obviously the most important. Um, the South African trip, I think, is going to be one that really tests Ulster. And <laughs> you look at some of the games that were going on in South Africa there over the weekend, I think you sort of see the difference between the South African teams away from home and at home. And whenever you consider that that's next up for Ulster directly before their European quarterfinal against Toulouse. Sorry, it's not even a quarterfinal. It's the last 16 game because of how the competition has been torn up this year. Um, But I think, yeah, sitting sitting second, a point behind Leinster at this stage of the season, I think if you'd offered that to Ulster at the start of the year, I think they'd have taken it and they'd probably have snapped your arm off, you know, especially if you then told them that they would do the double over Leinster in that period as well. Um, it'll be interesting to see, though, whenever they come back after this this little break that they've got now and they come back for the South African games, what they have taken from this Leinster game because I think there is there is a temptation to take a little bit too much from it. You know, at the end of the day, you have beaten a severely weakened Leinster team by five points. And I don't think that should be forgotten in terms of Ulster probably should have had someone who should have grabbed the game by the scruff of the neck in the second half. And they should have tried to really exert more dominance on the game. You know, whenever, whenever Ulster play at home, regardless of who they're playing, you still want them to be on the front foot. You want them to be the ones who are dictating the tempo. And for most of the second half, I don't think they did. And certainly whenever you go to South Africa, you're not going to dictate the tempo there for long periods of the game. You are going to be dictated too by a very fast and a very physical South African side, be it the Bulls, be it the Lions, be it the Stormers, whoever, all of them are very physical, but also very fast teams. So for me, yes, while while there's no doubt, I, I think they will be happy that they held on. And look, there are more positives to take than negatives from that game, in my opinion. I think there is a there is a degree of that game where you have to look at it and say, why did we let this game get a lot closer than we did? Because bear in mind that Ulster went into halftime eight points up and then came out straight after the restart and gave up three points within the first two minutes. So I think maybe there's just a little bit of there's a little bit that they need to work on, but I think that's maybe not a bad thing as as they sort of come into the stretch. Like everything has to be sort of seen in the context of going down the stretch in the URC now and then whenever we come to the European games because you're now in a position where Ulster are pretty much guaranteed their, their last eight spot, the, the, their quarterfinal spot, unless they seriously mess up the last few weeks of the season. Now it's all about gearing yourself up for the playoffs and making sure you're in the right position that whenever you hit the playoffs, not only do you have home advantage, but you are in a position where you're coming into some form. And I think 
this is probably the start now of that stretch. The Leinster Games signified the end of that sort of Six Nations period. Now you're into the end game, essentially. Yeah, and it's obviously going to... It's a really interesting end to the season for all of the teams that are pushing for those top spots, I think, made all the more so by the fact that the South African teams certainly look like they're going to be competitive and all the sort of runners and riders having to go to South Africa for those games. So, you know, we, we've focused in on Leinster and Munster playing each other. We've focused in on Ulster going to South Africa, but, you know, Ulster have Munster at home and Edinburgh away before finishing with the Sharks. So nothing is going to be, nothing's a given. You know, they don't have another bad team, if you like, to play this season. Uh, so... It's going to be a really, really interesting test, I think, of the progress that's been made really over the last two years because last year just sort of felt like a a dead year almost, certainly in terms of the league because it was very hard to get any sort of grasp on using those games as a measuring stick because some of the other teams were so bad last year. And obviously top two is the target because, you know, Ulster's home record at the minute speaks for itself. Like, they want to have... They want to have that semi-final for obvious reasons at home, even though they have shown and are one of the few teams in this league to have shown that they can go away and win in the last four. Just before we we move on from events at Ravenhill on on Saturday night, were there any players that stood out for you in particular? I, w- I want to stray away from Mike Lowry because we talk about Mike Lowry every single week. We know him at the moment. like He is a known quantity. Were there any other players that stood out for you in particular? Well, nobody that's not a known quantity. Like I thought, uh, I thought Nick Timoney played very well again. He's um, really been so consistent through this Six Nations period, as all the Irish internationals coming back into the team have been. It's really been a theme, I think, of this window how well the players that have been released have played for Ulster, bearing in mind the obvious disappointment that they're feeling at not being more involved with Ireland and what's been a Six Nations where the Ulster representation has been fairly paltry throughout. Do we think how they are playing and coming back is down to their own personal mindsets? Do we think there's something being said in Ireland camp that's making them come back like this? Because as you say, like this is probably the best that Ireland's returning internationals have played for Ulster. It's certainly in, in my memory, like the, these guys are coming back and they're putting in eight out of 10 performances. Whereas in previous years, we'd have seen guys come back and you maybe wouldn't even notice they were on the pitch. Yeah, I think that there is a certain element where it is probably part of the culture in the Ireland camp and how competitive training is in the Ireland camp and things like that. But the vast majority of the credit I would imagine goes to the players themselves because they're the ones that are getting sent back up the road whenever there's a massive test match that everybody's watching. And they're the ones playing in the pouring rain, in the gale, gale force winds, rolling up their sleeves and doing what they should be doing as Ireland internationals and being the best players on the pitch. You know, anyone that you talk to about that sort of group of players that's come through and even the other players in the squad will tell you that they do have this attitude that is 
for want of a better phrase, wise beyond their years. Like they have that maturity that um, I suppose has been instilled in them from an early age, coming through school, coming through the academy. And they're at a point where even though they're 22, 23, they give off the impression of being seasoned professionals. So they're coming in and, you know, it's not to overpraise them because they're coming in and doing the job that they should be doing. But I think, like you say, that's not always the case and it, it's understandable that it's not always the case. But really, if you go back to that Connacht game, so they all missed the Scarlets game. If you go back to that Connacht game, the Dragons game, the Cardiff game, and now the Leinster game, one of them has always been, if not the best player on the pitch, at the very worst, the second best player on the pitch, one of those returning players. So, it's been a huge boost and you can see how big a boost it is. Obviously, like we talked about it earlier with the, even just the team sheets, like you look at the Leinster team sheet for not getting anyone back and you look at the Ulster team sheet for getting a few guys back. And obviously as well, a few guys, the likes of Stuart McCluskey haven't been injured when the squad is picked and not being selected. Like the Ulster team on Saturday night for, to me was just as good as the one that they played in November against Leinster, whereas obviously the Leinster one was markedly weaker really um so i think they find themselves in something of a sweet spot because they have guys that are in form enough to be playing international rugby they have guys that have the talent to be playing international rugby but aren't at a time when all these other teams i I know cardiff had a few but like the vast majority of the teams that they're playing don't have their internationals well, Ulster's gain is certainly Ireland's loss, although I, I don't think you can really say that uh, Ireland would be changing much at the moment, to be honest. Um, but we will we will get on to that. Just before we move on from uh, Ulster matters in what is going to be a, a slightly shorter podcast than, than usual this week, uh, we did have the news come out that Jake Flannery is set to join Ulster, uh, not confirmed by Ulster yet, but... Uh, rumoured heavily that it's going to happen uh, currently Munster Flyhalf former Ireland under 20s international rumoured to be moving because he's not getting as much game time as he would have liked with Munster being stuck behind Carberry, Healy uh, but he's going to be coming up to probably sit behind Billy Burns and Ian Madigan initially Jonathan what do you make of the, the move for Jake Flannery? Yeah, well, I mean, Ulster never really replaced Bill Johnson whenever he left for Ealing. You're looking at it and you're, you know, he is the third choice fly half. The presumption this season was that Laurie was going to move back into, or to play more at out half. That obviously didn't happen thanks to injury for Will Addison and he's now started a game for Ireland at uh, fullback. So, I suppose regardless of what the plan was at Ulster, you have to say there's a very real chance that um, we're going to see more of Laurie at fullback moving forward than we do at 10. And that sort of leaves a hole in the squad. Like We've heard tell of this at Munster for a while, that basically other teams were looking at their out-half situation. You know, We know that Ronan Agar tried to get um, Carly over to La Rochelle, so it's one of those things we talked about this a few weeks ago on the pod. Like it's one of those things where if one province has a need and another province has a surplus that it's, it's going to happen. Like 
I think obviously the hope from an, <laughs> from a lot of Ulster fans is that it doesn't start happening in the uh, in the reverse. Yeah, because we, we've seen a lot of Leinster boys move to Connacht just this week. You know, Adam Byrne, David Hawkshaw, uh, Peter Dooley, I believe, is off to to Connacht as well. You know, you, you see a lot of guys seeing that there is game time out west and. Uh, arguably there's game time up north to be had as well which is why we're seeing some guys move but it really does seem to be like sorry sorry yes yes in the instance of Flannery but like to me it's a move worth making because he's 22 he's shown plenty of promise we know that he's played fullback but primarily will be viewed as a 10 and at the minute he's probably the fourth choice 10 for Munster and fourth choice is not a place that you want to be because it means that at that stage you're really playing all Ireland League rugby. You're not going to be playing too much for the for the province. But obviously, I suppose the ceiling for him is that he uh, one day becomes a starting ten. But I don't think he'll come in and get game time straight away because he's not going to displace Billy. But the the sorry the assumption is not going to be that he's going to rock up and displace Billy Burns right away. So like you know that's going to take an amount of time. Ian Madigan is still contracted for next season, but I suppose looking at it in the wider sense, why I brought it up in the first place, the idea of provincial movement is that I don't think there'll be too many players looking around in the other three provinces and thinking that they could get game time at Ulster because. The fact of the matter is that there isn't going to be too many players at the minute outside the other provinces starting 15s that are going to be better than what Ulster have in their starting 15. So, you know, there isn't a Jordy Murphy type. Like I know there was obviously chat among some people and a few rumors about like Max Deegan, but like Max Deegan's a good player, but would he get in the Ulster starting team at the minute? Possibly not. Well, I, I would, would say think, probably not. <laughs> you would think that even to get in the 23, he would have to be displacing somebody like Jordy Murphy. So, you know, I don't think it's the situation that we had in 2018 where an awful lot of players, I think, were looking at Ulster team and thinking that they were probably better than the starter that Ulster had. Like, I think in order to displace somebody, if not starting 15 now, starting 15 being, being the word, which is, you know, what people are really looking at when they're looking at provincial moves. Like people get excited about any kind of move, but like with the best will in the world, I th- we're not going to see this have an immediate impact. Somebody coming up to be the third choice 10. Like in terms of starters, I wouldn't say there's too many players in Ireland seeing too many gaps in the Ulster starting 15. No, no. And that's, it's not really what I was suggesting, but like Jake Flannery to me, I think, is a guy who has seen an opportunity for himself at Ulster where he jumps up one spot in the pecking order compared to where he is at Munster. Like, I I think at this point, Larry is just a fullback. I know Ulster want him to play fly half at some point. I know know that he himself wants to play fly half again. And I would imagine Ireland probably want him to play fly half in order to enhance his... uh, enhance his skill set again because with the best one in the world playing fly half at schools level is not the same as playing it at seniors level and to say that he is a 10 stroke 15 is rapidly becoming an anachronism because 
the more he plays at 15, the less he has played 10 at senior level. And he needs to get that back in order to have that versatility. And for me, like if he becomes a legitimate option at 10 and 15, I think he becomes close to a cert for the World Cup squad. I know we're still a long way out, but if you have that versatility, we know how valuable that is in a World Cup squad. Um, so for me, I think Flannery sees sort of that niche of if he can get into third choice, he can possibly work his way into second choice. And from there, if you're getting a few appearances off the bench, you can maybe work your way into first choice. It's a big leap. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. This isn't going to happen in, in the space of five weeks at the start of next season. But I think he certainly feels like there is an avenue or a better pathway to regular first team rugby at Ulster than there is at Munster. I agree with you completely that other positions aren't looking at that, but I would say, I would say there are some guys who maybe think that there is a better pathway to first team rugby at Ulster than at their current province. And it's not just by being parachuted straight in as the first choice at Ulster. It's by putting themselves in a better position at Ulster than they are at their current province and then working up through the pathway. I'd say Declan Burr is probably in a similar position where he probably thinks there's a better pathway to more first-team rugby with Ulster than there is at Munster, and that's why he's moved as well. And I suppose Ulster have shown a real willingness under Dan McFarlane to give younger players a chance before they're established players so that you know there is that idea playing into it as well where it is an environment where young players if they show up in training are are going to get minutes and are going to get a chance but um on, on that on that point another player that we didn't mention that i thought played very well tom stewart young hooker coming on for probably his longest appearance of the season so far i don't have the stats in front of me but i'm, I'm pretty sure that's his longest appearance and I thought he did really well, really dynamic with the ball, a few missed throws at the line-out, but, you know, Ulster took Sam Carter off and that took away their primary line-out caller, and I think that did sort of hit him a bit. He didn't quite have the same relationship with Alan O'Connor whenever he was calling the line-outs, but, you know, for for a kid, I, th- I think he's still 19, you know, massive potential, and I think he showed that on Saturday in what was really, really tough conditions for a hooker. Yeah, he's obviously been horrendously unfortunate with injuries. Um, probably was seen as the next cab off the rank after Balakin, Laurie and Hume came into the side. You know, people were talking about him that far back and um, just a bad, bad run of injuries. Obviously, we've seen guys like Stuart Moore, Nathan Doak sort of leapfrog him in that uh, perceived pecking order of the readiness of academy graduates. But I think if he can get fit, he's going to have a big role to play because, you know, we know Brad Roberts in the Wales squad for this weekend, but irrespective of that, is leaving anyway. So between him, John Andrew, and the fact that Rob Herring looks like he's going to be involved with Ireland next season and bearing in mind that it is a World Cup season the year after, um, there's going to be a lot of minutes there for three, possibly even four hookers, really. You, you've got to look only as, at the at the Ireland under-20s and you see James McCormick playing so well and Josh Hanlon. 
another Ulsterman who's coming off the bench to see that Ulster looked pretty well set at hooker for quite a while to come. And you're almost thinking whenever we're talking about players moving provinces, that might be a position that they're going to suddenly struggle to keep hold of guys because they don't have the minutes to give around. Yeah, I'd be more worried about it in the back line, but <laughs> I, think, I think the reckoning with that in the back line could be coming sooner. I should just point out at this stage that I am currently recording this from the SSE Arena ahead of the Belfast Giants Challenge Cup Final. So if you can hear something in the background, um, it is a fridge in the room that I am recording this in. I do apologize, but this is what happens when you have to fit in a podcast recording while you're trying to prepare for another event. Moving on from Ulster matters, Ireland's big win at Twickenham on Saturday. We've talked about uh, a, a lot in the paper and, and the things that you've written, Johnny, about how it's a record win for Ireland at Twickenham. But, I mean, the 32-15 scoreline just did not tell the tail of the tape at all did it like that was about as unconvincing a 17 point win you could possibly have yeah obviously like the record Irish win at Twickenham and uh, I think as you say the story for most people watching it was the fact that it was 15 apiece with uh, well, 16 minutes to go Ireland obviously took the lead with 15 minutes to go but um, I think it was just frustrating in general I suppose at performance and it was frustrating that we didn't get the opportunity to gauge this Ireland team on the road against a full strength team of the level of England because I know I've sort of been banging on about this for a good chunk of this sort of 54 week now if you like strong run from Ireland but like we still haven't really seeing what they can do you know can they go away and beat a team like France beat a team like England without an early red card because not to be disparaging towards Scotland but Scotland are still the best team that we've seen them beat outside Dublin without the huge caveat of a red card after 90 seconds Um, going back what is now almost four full years I suppose whenever you look at this Ireland team, I think the the biggest thing that was the letdown was the expectation that they would have gone on and won that quite comfortably. And especially how they reacted immediately after the red card, which was to put themselves well, it was like eight nothing eight nil after six minutes or something like that. Like yeah. I mean were, it does sound ridiculous because we're only talking about ninety seconds, but they did look sharp in those ninety seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and then whenever they went 8-0 and you know you had the disallowed try that um, would have made it 13-0 possibly 15-0 and at that point it really did look like it could have been obviously it ended up being a record but it looked like it could have been a historic hammering for England at that point because they really were rocking but then you know the scrum uh, penalties start to come into play Ireland turned the ball over an awful lot more than they normally do. Just lack of execution, really, from Ireland. And it just, it's obviously the second game in this championship where we've seen them decisively win the try count, but through their own 
errors in discipline by giving away silly penalties because obviously you can debate the scrum penalties if you like, but it wasn't only scrum penalties that um, Ireland were giving away. So it's the second time we've seen that where they've been scoring more tries in the opposition, but still haven't put the game away and obviously ultimately lost the game against France despite winning the try count. So it's hard to be too critical or turn your nose up at such a big win in Twickenham and wins in Twickenham come around so rarely, but it wasn't a particularly impressive way to get that to get that result. I think you can you can both be content to win in Twickenham and also want more. I I don't think it, the two are like mutually exclusive. Um, I think you, you can be happy to have won in Twickenham and also realize that there's a lot more to come. Um, because at, at the end of the day, you know, we're as we keep talking about, we're in this situation where Ireland are building towards a World Cup and you, you want to see progression week on week. And I think you didn't see that against England. I think that performance is probably probably the first performance during the Six Nations where they have taken a, a very visible step back in the level of performance that they produced. And it might be that they took their foot off the gas because after that sort of, whenever they went up the man and then they scored twice so quickly that they thought this is going to be a cakewalk and England are going to capitulate. Or maybe it was that England really just battled hard after those and got back. But Ireland, to me, will need a response against Scotland this weekend. I think they need to show that Last week was a little bit of a, a blip rather than anything else. Um, I mean, before- yeah, you do have to give credit to England, like, because you mentioned mm-hmm. there, you know, the level that they took their game to. And I've talked about this before, like, that 2019 World Cup semi final is probably the most impressive performance I've ever seen in the flesh. And you know that when Ireland get, sorry, when England get their forwards to that level, they can beat absolutely anybody because they have the personnel in the forwards. No matter what Eddie Jones says, they can beat anyone. Exactly. (laughs) To be at the to be at that physical pitch means that England are a match for anybody in the world and can beat anybody in the world. The curiosity, and it's not a curiosity for us to debate, it's for other people, is that they don't hit that level very often. But when their forwards are on it, like they were on Saturday, even when there's only seven of them and Jack Knowles turning into a flanker, they can make life difficult for you. It was a mad week for players having to play flanker, specifically wingers. Like you had Noel in in Twickenham, you had Ben Moxham at Ravenhill. It's becoming a trend. I don't like it. I don't think uh, Ben Moxham will want to uh, repeat that anytime soon. I get the feeling Jack Knowles kind of likes it, but uh... I'll tell you what: if if they move Stuart McCluskey to flanker, that would open up a whole can of worms. <laughs> um, that would just solve our too many centres issue. <laughs> we could have been that whole section of the podcast. It wouldn't have solved the now too many flankers issue that Ulster seemed to have. Um, no, well, that's true. Our much hoped for emergence of Marcus Ray really has. Uh, change the picture there uh, having had us talk about it for the past two years of whether it was going to happen or not yeah it takes away an av- a whole avenue of conversation for the podcast which isn't good moving forward if i'm going to have to start thinking up topics to talk about yeah i don't know what we're going to talk about in the summer now that uh i don't, I don't know who the next guy is 
just before we move on from that game at Twickenham, the red card to Charlie Yules, any arguments at all, or was that the right decision? No, none whatsoever. It's 100% the right decision. It has to be a red card. Wrote the column about it this week. Like, you have to keep showing red cards for this in the hope that eventually players start to tackle lower. Like, this idea, and I feel strongly about this, this idea that um, you can't ruin the spectacle of, or you shouldn't ruin the spectacle of the Six Nations, given the glut of Six Nations red cards that we've had for this kind of thing over the past two years is a nonsense. So all these people bleeding on about the laws are ruining the game, the interpretation of the laws is ruining the game, the referees are ruining the game. What's ruining the game is the fact that people are not getting low enough when they tackle. Completely agree. And I thought some of the comments afterwards were really tone deaf. Like I know you mentioned Victor Matfield in your column, which you can read on the Huge Belfast Telegraph website. Victor Matfield. <laughs> it's not what I needed of my Sunday. <laughs> well, it definitely gave you the fuel for the fire for your column, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> you do frequently get to that point in the weekend where you're like, something has to happen so that I can write about it. And thankfully it did. But uh, not the best of circumstances for it, for it to come up, it must be said. I, I do completely agree, though. There, there's a real emphasis on player safety in the game of rugby at the moment, and rightly so, because of all the long-term issues that we are hearing about and the lawsuits that are coming because of it. If you are going to penalise people for this, you have to bring down the letter of the law on them and you have to give them red cards. It is on the players to change, not the laws. So players have to tackle low. And funny... My brother and I were watching uh, the highlights of um, Biarritz Toulon at the weekend. Uh, in fact, it was just yesterday we were watching them. And he actually paused it at one point and he said, rewind that back. And it was a tackle from uh, Brian Alanuesa, who used to play for Glasgow, now plays for Toulon, second row. Uh, he tackles Baptiste Saran up high. But his tackle technique is atrocious. He is completely upright, never dips at the hips at all. Fully, fully upright, 180 degrees between him and the ground, and he just sticks out an arm and catches Saran around the neck. Like that is the kind of tackle technique that needs to be coached out of the game. And I, there was no because Toulon went on and scored from the incident. There was no supplemental discipline. But I think if they went back and looked at that, there's every argument for a red card. So for me, yeah, it absolutely has to be stamped out. And if it means you know, that games in competitions as big as the Six Nations, and it's going to happen in a big game, say, in the World Cup. If this happens in the World Cup final, there is going to be outcry that the game was ruined. But player safety has to come first, and you have to apply the letter of the law in the strictest way possible, whether it happens in the 82nd second of the game or the 82nd minute of the game. If you tackle a player up high and it is dangerous, you're sent off. It is up to players to change their tackle technique. It is up to coaches to coach to change the tackle technique. So I completely agree. Well, Eddie Jones has actually said today, um, or in quotes that have been in the English press today anyway, that they have focused on the chop tackle in training now this week. Um, But there was a really interesting segment in the BBC coverage of the Wales-France game about the tackle technique, and it was more in line with, players endangering themselves through poor tackle techniques and endangering the opposition. But it was just really interesting to hear, you know, guys like Sam Warburton, who obviously um, isn't that long out of the game. And then Martin Johnson as well, just sort of highlighting how 
just how poor the tackle technique at test level was and the idea that you know coaches can get so caught up in the minutiae of the game at this level that there are some absolute basics that are just being overlooked Well, we will move on to affairs at the Aviva Stadium this week then. Ireland-Scotland, they have to win in order to keep their Six Nations hopes alive. They have to hope England do them a favour at the Stade de France. We'll start at the Aviva, first of all. It looks like Ian Henderson's going to get the start because James Ryan is out and, to a lesser extent, Ryan Baird is out. How do we think this game is going to go? Scotland had one of those really weird Six Nations where it started out so well with the win over England and everyone was tipping them as dark horses to win the thing. And since then, it's cratered off the edge of a cliff with defeats to Wales and then also a defeat to France. Are, are we expecting this to be as easy as Ireland are just going to get the job done and it's all about what happens in Paris? Yeah, I think so. I think they'll hammer them. Um to be honest. Um, <laughs> Scotland have had a very Scotland Six Nations. And it's that's, more that's probably the, the best description of it I've heard so far. Scotland yeah, have had a Scotland of a Six Nations. Like I do think it's more on the rest of us. Like Scotland get an awful lot of jip this side of uh this side of the Irish Sea for this idea that they talk themselves up and then fall flat. But like I don't ever really see evidence of the Scots talking themselves up. I think they're just a massively, massively inconsistent team, and probably know that themselves. <laughs> like I don't think that I don't think they talk themselves up. I think it's just more that there is a realization that this is probably the most talented Scottish squad for maybe ten years, and they're just not doing anything with it. Uh, I would say you're you're probably doing them a disservice to say ten years. I would say. Um, <laughs> I, I was trying to be a little bit cautious with my estimation. <laughs> I'd say you're going back at, at least 23 years and possibly 33 years, but um Oh no, steady on. I'm reading Dottie Weir's autobiography at the moment. He'd make you think they were world beaters back at the end in the 90s. Well, that's you know, they did win the five nations as it were. So I was going back then, and then you can go back to the Grand Slam team of the early 90s, but um there's been some bad teams in between, between that and that as well. So um, I think, yeah, like they are just inconsistent in every aspect of their game, apart from losing to Ireland. So um, I don't see any reason why that's going to change this week when Ireland, regardless of what anybody outside the camp thinks the likelihood is, know that they have to go and win in order to at least put the pressure on France to slip up. If you're Ireland and all you got from the Six Nations was the Triple Crown, would you be happy with that? And I ask this because we had a piece in with Tony Ward from the weekend where he said that at this stage, it's not enough for Ireland. Given how good this France team is, and we're talking about, similar to Scotland, we're talking probably a generational France team where you have world-class stars like Intimac and Dupont leading them. Is a triple crown necessarily a bad return from a Six Nations where you had to go to Paris and you had to go to London and play your two away games? No, I don't think it's a bad return. I think, you know, 
Triple Crown used to be, or Irish Triple Crown used to be as rare as Healy's Comet. Like you think back to 2004 and how big a deal that was at the time. Obviously, the modern day Irish rugby fan, having witnessed two Grand Slams and two other titles in a nine year span, probably views these things a little bit differently. But for me, I would say taking the notion of a triple crown out of it, you know, just judging the Six Nations, I think that's what is frustrating about Saturday because you have these check boxes, if you like. So what you were looking for in the Six Nations, sorry, what I was looking for in the Six Nations would have been a widening of the panel. I said that a month ago or six weeks ago before the tournament, we didn't really see that because we saw one game from Mike Laurie against Italy that was like just the least competitive test probably that I've ever attended, I think. And Mac Hansen came in, make a good impact. Thought he was probably fairly unfortunate not to be in the in the mix for the England game. And then well, I wanted to see to see them respond to adversity, which we did in France because they were on the ropes against France, but managed to come back. So that's one checkbox. And then the other one was what I mentioned, this uh, sort of elusive big away win. And it feels like we've sort of been robbed of the opportunity of that. So it's not that we've seen Ireland, I think personally, have a good Six Nations or a bad Six Nations. It just feels incomplete. It doesn't feel like there's a hell of a lot that we can say we've learned from it. Like, I think... Our, we knew Ireland were a good team coming in and they've shown us that they're a good team. But what I would have viewed as the markers of progression from November, which it has to be remembered was a very surprising November, but the markers of progression from November haven't really been there. And if you think they were going to beat England without the red card, then there is that sense that you've almost been denied the opportunity to see the proof of that. Well, that ruins our review of the Six Nations podcast next week because you've kind of already done it. <laughs> yeah, over straight on to South Africa. Next <laughs> game focus. No looking back. Well, I care about is getting back to South Africa and I'm not getting to do that this year. So we may as well focus on the Six Nations. On, I think uh, it would have been a very good one to go Pretoria and Cape Town. I will very much miss Port Elizabeth. That is a beautiful spot in the world. Do you think France will do Ireland a favour just to finish things off in the Six Nations or are we expecting France to roll over England and get the job done? Grand Slam, everybody's happy in Paris for a night. Um, well, I think, like, again, to touch on it, like, England, we know what they can do. Do I think they're going to do it in Paris with France going for their first Grand Slam in 12 years? Probably not. Like I think you talk about markers for Ireland. I think France probably needed that marker of winning ugly in the way they did against Wales. Winning in a fashion that all anybody was talking about afterwards was, you know, wasn't DuPont, wasn't uh, Penno, even though he wasn't playing, wasn't Entomac, but was Sean Edwards. You know, they have that kind of win now on their, uh, on their CV. Sean Edwards trying to speak French is both the most respectful thing I've seen for a while, 
but also the funniest thing I've seen in a while because you just don't expect it from a guy like that. I absolutely love that uh, that video. Like I, I I haven't seen much out of this like these cameras that they put in the in the tuning rooms, but uh, Sean Edwards speaking English and then saying tackle in French three times. It, like I'm sure he knows plenty of other words, but it just put this notion in my head that the only word he knows how to say in French is tackle, which would just be perfect. But um, I think the other thing for France is obviously going to be dealing with the pressure because there's not going to, they're never going to be under more pressure than at a home world cup next year. But I think it's sort of because they're so good to watch, it gets swept under the carpet and forgotten about that. They should have won the last two six nations as well. Like they should be going for their third in a row and they haven't because they've lost games that they shouldn't have lost, uh, that they shouldn't have lost that we wouldn't expect them to lose going in. So it's very much a cliche of which France is going to turn up and know, you know, this typically French idea, but there is a kernel of truth to that, that they have to show that they can win a game where we all expect them to win to deliver something significant. But that said, I do think that they're going to do it. So. Yeah, no, I would agree too. I think whenever you think about how loud that Stade de France can get for big games, I think it would be surprising if they didn't manage to get over the line. And it almost seems like those mental shackles have been taken off this France team. It's almost like the experiences of years past have finally sort of hit home and it's finally ingrained in them what it means to win those big games because if you look at that Ireland game that game is easily one that they could have lost whenever Ireland started to fight back and maybe if Ireland had kicked to the corner they would have won but France wrote that out and won they wrote out that game in Wales and won they're not going to have it all their own way against England for sure but I think being swept on by that Stade de France crowd I think they're going to do it as well. So I think, unfortunately, we're in agreement that it's going to be disappointment from a Six Nations perspective for Ireland, but I'm sure they'll take the triple crown and they'll be very pleased with it. Because I think you're right. Like, that, you know, talking about those games that they would have lost, that Wales game is one that they would have lost in the mm-hmm. past. And that's not one of those, like, empty things that people say, you know, and they would have lost that game in the past. Like, that is the game they would have lost yeah. in the past. You know, we've seen it. We've seen it against Scotland. You know they had that terrible record in Murrayfield as well. Like, um, so it almost feels like that was the the final hurdle, if you like. Even though I do think that dealing with the pressure of going out and doing it on Saturday night is going to be a significant thing, but I do think it's something that they'll that they can handle. Just to round us off this week, we're going to briefly touch on the Danske Bank Schools Cup final, which is being played tomorrow, or if you're listening to this on Thursday morning, it's being played on Thursday afternoon, the uh, St. Patrick's Day, three o'clock at Ravenhill Methodist College Belfast against Campbell College Belfast. Um, oh, we were listening to it any other time, it's already happened. Yeah, so you may as well just skip this part of the podcast and go to the outro. Um, look, Probably the two best teams in the competition this year, based on everything that we've been told in the build-up to the competition. And certainly the two better teams in the semi-finals, for sure. Johnny, how do you see this going? I think I think we were both very impressed with how 
method he overcame Inst in what was a very entertaining game in the first semi-final. But Campbell were just so dogged to get over the line against Wallace in completely opposite conditions the next day. What are you thinking ahead of this one? I think it's interesting because you always think of Methody as a sort of forwards-based unit, even though there's been some incredibly talented backs that have come into the Ulster setup through Methody, and much more so than forwards that have come through Methody. But you think when you think of a Methody Schools Cup team, I think you think of big, physical, set-piece, well-drilled. But like... Looking at the two teams, I think Campbell's pack is probably thinking they can get the edge there, especially having watched Inst mull over for two tries in the semi-final. But then you have this like razor sharp methody backline. And it's almost, you know, you almost get the impression that Campbell would prefer to be known as a free-flowing back backs oriented team, and that Methody would rather be the uh hard-nosed, dogged forwards team, but it's a flip reversal of what you'd expect. So basically what we saw in the semi-final will be absolutely no indication of how the final is going to go. (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I don't want to pigeonhole either team into being what we saw of them in the (laughs) semi-final. Yeah, exactly. And like, you also don't want to say that it's, you know, weather dependent, but like, I do get this sneaking suspicion that maybe uh, you know a foul day would have suited Campbell. I don't think we're going to get that, but like I have to say, I'm really looking forward to the game because there was an awful lot, and I'm guessing you'd probably say the same. There was an awful lot of promise from uh, those two semi-finals. Like there was plenty on show in those semi-finals to indicate that we could have a really good final. I think. I think the two sides are certainly ones that you want to, you really want to watch. Like, I think that's sort of the main thing is that they're not two teams that you know are going to get in an arm wrestle and just fight it out. I think both teams are happy to make it physical whenever they need it to, but they've both got really good backlines as well, which means, you know, you're going to get a game that is easy on the eye, and that's really what you want. I've just looked up the weather forecast there. It's projected to rain all day up until the final, and then at 3 o'clock, the clouds will clear, and it'll all be fine. So um, The weather knows that the Schools Cup final is back for the first time in three years. Well, this is the thing. If any of the guys who are playing it are listening to this, or if you're going down to watch the game, enjoy it, because... I know I've missed the Schools Cup final. It's one of the staples of the of the rugby year, and it is the staple of the Schools rugby year, obviously. Um, and to not have it since 2019 is a massive hole in the in the Northern Irish and the, the Irish rugby calendar. So to have it back is a massive thing. And I know I've really enjoyed doing the coverage of it all year. So really excited to see how it, how it comes to an end. But like I might uh, completely be misreading this, but it does feel like there's more buzz this year than in other years because it's gone to the point where it almost feels like there's more buzz about the game. Obviously, it's first up, but like there's more buzz about Thursday than there is about Saturday. Well, absolutely, and I, I don't disagree with that because the Schools Cup is kind of the one rugby thing that we've been missing for the last three years. You know, even during the pandemic, the, the Six Nations managed to get completed the URC came back and then we had the Rainbow Cup. The European Cup came back. 
the Skills Cup is the one thing that we haven't had. And for anybody who only casually follows the Skills Cup and only really gets interested for the final, this is this is the first final since 2019. This is like a three-year wait come to an end. And I think Ethan Macker was the best player the last time the Skills Cup final was played. Yeah, He's which already played like 30 times for Ulster. That's how long ago the last final was. Well, I, I had to. I did a preview with uh, Nathan Doak, which is in today's paper, and it just hit me that you know three players from that team are now in the academy with Ulster, and Doak himself has made eighteen appearances <laughs> for Ulster since that game. So time moves on very quickly, but uh, no, it should be a good game. Uh, Methody, I think, are slightly favorites just based on what we saw in the semi-finals but like we're we're talking very slim margins here it's it's not going to be an an easy game for for either side but it should be an absolute cracker here you back in john um i suppose i should say campbell just to be different really shouldn't (laughs) um no as i said i think it's gonna be a really interesting battle in this idea that you know styles make fights and Campbell have this sort of spine of Ulster and Ireland schools players in their pack and Methody have that in their back line. So it's going to be interesting, I think, to see who can stamp their authority on the game. I think Methody probably have more experience, it would possibly be fair to say, of the big occasion, having played a semi-final or some of the players having played a semi-final in 2020 at Ravenhill and obviously a very decent chunk of the team now having won the medallion final at Ravenhill the year before. So you would think that they have the edge, but I'm, I think that we're going to have a close game as well. And we should note that Campbell are going for something of a double after winning the medallion shield against Balamina last week. So it'd be a massive year for the school if they managed to do both of those. So you can follow all the action from the Schools Cup final on the Belfast Telegraph website tomorrow. That's going to be starting at half past two. It is myself doing it. You can follow a live blog of the Ireland-Scotland game on Saturday as well on the Belfast Telegraph website. And of course, keep checking back for all the latest previews and reviews of all the games this week. But until we see you next week, from Jonathan Bradley. Cheers, thank you very much. And from myself, Adam McKendry, stay safe, and we will see you very soon.